we're still on chapter 2 there is a very good possibility that we end chapter 2 today I hope we make it <laughs> working out of the essence of the Bhagavad Gita that Swami Kriyananda wrote tuning, feeling, remembering the words of his Guru as he was there as a young monk when he was 22 years old he was there taking notes while his Guru interpreted the Bhagavad Gita and uh, it's our great um, honor really to receive this parampara starting from Krishna to Arjuna and that that journey that channel continues even today and you perhaps one day will pass it on to your children to those who perhaps feel the inspiration from you so let us go into this scripture and see what message we have today for us where we left off just so that we have the right context is Krishna was of course telling Arjuna about the principles of yoga and especially he was talking about karma yoga when he introduced yoga as the neutralization of the life force within us and the neutralization of karma he said let me talk to you first about the yoga of action which means those acts how to act, the attitudes of action, and in which direction should our actions be, such that yoga happens, which means neutralization of karma takes place. So remember, when we're talking about karma yoga, we're not just talking about good actions, we're not talking about charitable actions, although those naturally help, but we're talking about actions in alignment and attunement with our individual dharma and with universal principles and Arjuna at this time you know Krishna being so philosophical so vast in his explanations Arjuna wants to bring it down for your and my sake and he says oh Krishna what are the signs of one who has attained calm wisdom and is established in union with God how does he sit speak and walk this is where we left it last time and we were talking about again the importance of the Guru, the importance of a, a clear representation of what that calm wisdom looks like. What does union with God look like? Because our understandings are very just biased by things we've read, things we think this is what I believe being perfectly calm means, this is what I believe being non-attached means and we're not sure because there's, there's a lot of pretense from our side. We, we try to paste onto ourselves things that are only possible as our consciousness transforms. However, it's important to have those examples before us. And then Krishna continues. He doesn't answer Arjuna's question the way he wants it. But of course, he's always lifting it up higher. Opartha Arjuna. One who has put away all desires, being wholly contented in the self, may be considered settled in wisdom. I'll read just a few more passages because they're all very similar. He whose consciousness is unshaken by affliction and is not excited by good fortune, who no longer hungers for earthly affection and is without fear and anger, such a man qualifies to be considered a muni of steady discrimination. He who under all circumstances is without attachment 
and is neither elated by goodness nor depressed by evil, is a man of established wisdom. Now, if somebody were to ask me, <laughs> who is a man of wisdom? You know, I would be like, well, who knows a lot, you know, who really has all the answers to all the questions and who's able to, anytime something happens, he's able to bring forth, you know, this great ocean of knowledge and understanding. And Krishna doesn't pick it up from there at all. Again, because he's trying to help us understand the inner realities that then brings forth the ability to know, the intuition to perceive, the wisdom also to act and to interact with this world. But what Krishna is talking about, and he's just been at this for a while, it's like, it's like he really wants to hammer this thought into Arjuna. Again, even-mindedness, nor this, nor that, nor too excited, nor too dejected, nor getting attached to wanting nor trying to push away and this is where you and I tend to find ourselves or this morning we did an affirmation interestingly on even-mindedness and Swamiji was giving the example of the wave and he says people think that you know they're they're making progress and they're moving forward but they're really just moving up and down <gasps> I want this I don't want this oh this is so good this is so bad and we spend so much of our time energy and effort trying to hold on to that which we consider good. Something nice comes in our way and we try everything to keep that nice feeling, person, relationship, moment, you know, just intact, hold it, let it not change, let it not transform into something else. And the other time we spend our time constantly pushing and resisting everything that we consider bad. And all that is what takes up our time and that's our interaction with the world holding on to that which we feel is good pushing away that which we feel is bad and the man of wisdom krishna is saying is one who recognizes that neither of the two are at all real they're both temporary waves on the ocean of god's consciousness and why would anybody rather than accepting and responding to the wave appropriately try to get so involved with the wave with the hope that that wave lasts longer than it will and that's the wisdom he wants arjuna to establish especially because again and again we have to come back to the context here krishna is not talking to arjuna about you know go and be somewhere and try to really separate yourself from the world again the whole process that we're part of is this battlefield Krishna and Arjuna are both on the battlefield. That it, it is in the battlefield that Krishna wants Arjuna to understand. Oh, don't get too caught up with the Pandavas or the Kauravas. Don't get so hopeful that, you know, once the Pandavas win, it's just that's the only reality there is. Once I get everything that I want, once all my desires are fulfilled, that's where I will finally find satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, we know it doesn't work, but we're yet to get to that point of what does work. And this doesn't seem very appealing to us. I love the word here, Muni, that Krishna uses. Muni is an interesting term. It comes from Man, and it comes from Mon, which is silence. So the, the silence of the mind. He who has silenced his mind is a Muni. 
And that's where our, our restlessness is. That's where these ripples of likes and dislikes live. Before I continue, because the next uh, verse, Krishna goes into helping understand that the interiorization of the life force is really what's trying to happen here away from senses. I want to talk a little bit about, again, establish the right context here for us. And we have to bring in with the Gita a little bit of Patanjali. And in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, he talks about in his second stanza, his second sutra is the definition of yoga. Yoga's chitta vritti nirodh. Yoga is the neutralization of the vrittis, the whirlpools of chitta. When Yogananda explained this concept of chitta, he used an example which I'm sure a lot of you have heard us say over and over again. But it's always important to come back, come back to that basic reality. Wait a minute, this is what I am here for. And Yogananda said, we have four aspects to our consciousness. Man, buddhi, ahankar and chitta. Mind, intellect, ego and chitta. And to understand chitta, he gave this example. He says the mind, and you remember who represents the mind in the Gita? I'll give you a moment is Dhritarashtra and Dhritarashtra is blind. The mind is blind and he used Yogananda the example of a mirror. Like a mirror, the mind only reflects, it receives information through the senses. So the mind receives and Yogananda used the example of a horse. So he says if the mind's a mirror, reflected perfectly in it is the horse and the mind is able to take in all the information but that's all. It's blind in the sense it's unable to actually make sense of the information. So it sees the color, the size, the shape, the smell, everything is now perfectly reflected in it. But then comes the buddhi, the intellect that says this is a horse. It processes, it makes sense out of the information it has received. Buddhi is Pandu, who is the brother of the uh, who is the father, sorry, of the Pandavas. So you've got Dhritarashtra and Pandu, Man and Buddhi. So Buddhi is able to discriminate, able to process and separate and see. Then comes the Ahankar. Now Ahankar here again, very important to remember, is not this bad uh, thing that we tend to give the ego a very negative uh, sense. But Ahankar is just that separation. So Ahankar here, sees the horse and says, this is my horse, which essentially it says, it's trying to relate everything back to itself. If the horse was not its horse, it would say, it is not my horse. This is my friend's horse. This horse, I don't know whose it is. So everything is the I. What relationship does this object, this horse, this desire, this person, this relationship have with me? And that is what the ego is. It is a separate identity that reflects and references back everything to itself. But Yogananda said, even here, the soul is not fully caught up in maya, in delusion. It is the chitta that really does the trick. And the chitta says, how happy I am to see my horse. Or how unhappy I am that I don't have a horse. How, oh, it's too bad my horse is not as beautiful as the other person's horse. 
And so what happens here is Chitta comes in and separates the world into good and bad, likes and dislikes. So the definition Yogananda gave for Chitta was the biased feelings of the heart, of the likes and dislikes of the self. And so you see this process coming down and the Chitta in many ways represents all the Kauravas and some of the Pandavas as well, the good and the bad. And the Ahankar is Bhishma. Now it doesn't have to add up kind of genealogically. And Bhishma is the grand sire here. And it is his ability to offer himself up, otherwise he will not die. And that is the power of the ego. Eventually it surrenders itself to God. It cannot be vanquished of its own, on its own. And so what we're dealing with here are these chittas, these whirlpools, these vortexes of energy within us that catch us. Your desires, your likes, your dislikes. You don't want to be upset, but that vritti, that vortex of energy is more powerful than your desire not to be upset. And we go into anger. We see something instantly as, ah, oh, that's such a beautiful thing. I wish I had it. And we see something we don't like, ah, I really don't want it. And so our chitta is what defines us, is the sum totality of our personality. And we've been building this chitta lifetime after lifetime, giving energies to our habits, to our thought patterns, and everything that we've put out, all our desires. So you can imagine the amount of chitta we've built up and all of that, those whirlpools, those vortexes of energies, they're in our spine. And they're around the chakras. In fact, the chakra, in a sense, is its own really large vritti because that's what it is, a wheel of energy. And so we have to understand that wisdom is his who has neutralized and is no longer a slave to his vrittis. That's what Krishna really means. And then he explains this. When a yogi, like a tortoise, withdrawing its head, head and limbs into its shell, is able to withdraw his energy from the objects of sense perception, he becomes established in wisdom. You see, wisdom will be ours only when we're no longer being defined by our chitta. And it's not an easy thing, and Krishna by is making it sound easy, but he knows this is a long process, and he's going to give us a lot more advice along the way to help us. But he's establishing for us the baseline here. The idea here is not knowledge, not to know. The idea for wisdom is when you have successfully broken those slavish ties to your likes and dislikes, to the ups and downs of the world, to the reactions that even though we don't want to have them, we end up having them, then and only then will you be established in wisdom. You see, that is why a saint is very hard to figure out because it's not what's going on on the inside. It's that they have completely withdrawn. They are in absolute control of their own life force, of their own energy, and they choose Okay, it can go out here. They will look human in every respect, but every act, every thought, everything they do is a conscious choice of where I want my life force to go because that's wisdom guided. It's no longer a compulsion. 
Now the man who merely abstains from sense enjoyments may forget them for a time, but the taste for them will linger. That person, however, who beholds the Supreme Spirit loses the taste for anything but the infinite. So now Krishna is giving the flip side of it. It's not just that we remove ourselves from, you know, our um, compulsions, from the binding that our life force has to the world. It is also where we then direct this life force because through self-control through suppression through abstinence yes you can hold on to that life force and say okay i'm not going to give in to that habit i'm not going to give in to that desire but if it doesn't have a greater purpose sooner or later it'll come back and he uses this beautiful idea of the taste continues to linger yogananda would use this example of cheese he says once you've eat, you know if you're used to eating stale cheese all the time it is only when you taste good cheese will you then let go of that and this is where we are we only know sense pleasure so we naturally say you know this is all there is you know why not be happy now why not feel fulfilled now money does make me happy so why not go for it because we've not tasted anything tastier than that but once we've tasted the Supreme, that is the only way we make permanent changes. He continues on to say, O son of Kunti, Arjuna, even the wise man devoted to self-control may sometimes be swept away by the turbulent senses. Exactly what we just said. He who, having subjugated his senses, becomes united with me and remains engrossed in the infinite self, knowing it, to be supremely relishable, mm. supremely yummy. That's how Krishna is calling this that supreme state. Once you have the taste of God's bliss, only then will we in wisdom let go of everything else. So you have to have both. Create that meditation, create the act of yoga where you draw your life force away but it has to be directed up to God because until you don't experience the divine, it becomes very hard to avoid the more immediate sense pleasures that seemingly, well, they, they feel very good at the time. Only mastery of the senses can bestow the steadfastness of true wisdom. Dwelling mentally on sense objects, this is a nice passage here that Krishna brings in. Dwelling mentally on sense objects breeds attachment to them. So Krishna says the first thing is thought. We start thinking about this and essentially he's really describing the way these vrittis are created. You know, you think about, okay, I want an ice cream. You know, it's just like a thought of an ice cream came in. And that little energy that that thought generates, you know, creates and activates just a little bit of a movement of energy in the spine around the particular chakra where that desire, where the quality, where the frequency and resonance of that desire is. The lower it is, the naturally more downward pulling, the higher it is, the naturally upward pulling. And this is what really it is. The Pandavas are these desires and the Kauravas are these desires. So the Pandavas are first helping us lift our energy, but then even they need to be overcome as we offer ourselves to the divine so he's saying first mentally just through thought you know the it breeds attachment to them from attachment arises craving then little by little the more we think about it 
That's why thought is where you want to catch all these things. Then that vritti becomes stronger, it becomes a craving. The desire becomes so powerful that you can't but think about it anymore. Before you chose to think about it, now you're forced to think about it. From craving, when frustrated, springs anger. And when you can't have what you want, well, we get angry, we get irritated, we get frustrated, we get disappointed. Anger produces delusion. What essentially anger here represents is not just angriness, but that agitation of the chitta, which produces delusion. And delusion causes forgetfulness of the self. Loss of memory as to who you are in truth causes decay of the power of discrimination. And from loss of discrimination ensues the annihilation of all right understanding. So Krishna is showing us the relationship here between desire and the loss of wisdom. As long as we have desires, and this is not to discourage us in any way, but as long as we have desires, that wisdom that Krishna is talking about is hard. Why? Because as long as there are desires, we are compelled to fulfill those desires. And then you cannot be wisdom guided because wisdom is completely neutral. And as long as there is compulsion, we'll always go either towards the desires or towards avoiding that which we don't want. And all our decisions, one way or the other, will be biased on these two aspects. The man of perfect self-control, Krishna says, is able to act in this world unaffected by it. Inwardly free from attraction and repulsion, he has attained unshakable inner calmness. With the attainment of soul bliss, every vestige of sorrow disappears. Bliss gives perfect discrimination and soon establishes one's consciousness firmly in the self. So here's where Krishna brings it. Bliss will give you wisdom. Nothing short of it. Everything, yes, we're moving in the direction and we know we're going to keep making choices up the ladder. We're not going to attain bliss today or tomorrow. Perhaps we will. Let's not limit ourselves. But we know where we ought to be heading. If we're looking for wisdom-guided action, bliss needs to be our goal. And bliss is achieved when all that life force, when those vrittis, that's what happens when we meditate. The energy rises up the spine and all those vrittis get washed away in that energy. And they get redirected in that energy. And the stronger that energy is, that life force is, the more um, it's able to neutralize those vrittis little by little. So every meditation matters. Even if you feel nothing's happening, even if you felt I was so restless today, but just that little bit of energy is working, is working, is working until little by little it begins to shave the energy off of these vrittis. And then that bliss naturally begins to blossom. Those with unsettled consciousness have no discrimination. Again, that agitated consciousness. Those who are unmeditative cannot know peace. And for those who lack peace, how is happiness possible? A very good question. How is happiness possible? 
And so those who are unmeditative, in Krishna does not, does not mince his word. Just cutting right there. But if you're not going to establish a meditative practice, it's just not going to happen. As a boat moving on water may be swept off its course by a gale, so discrimination may be swept from its path by the vagaries of sensory influence. Therefore, O mighty armed Arjuna, withdraw your sense faculties from the senses themselves and from sense objects. Thus will your wisdom become firmly established again and again. Go within, Arjuna, go within, and not just within, withdraw, interiorize this life force. You have to draw it both from the Ida and the Pingla, both from the Pandavas and the Kauravas, both from the good and the bad, and establish yourself in the Shushumna, and then wisdom will be yours. That which is night for the unenlightened is day for the yogi. And that which is day for the ordinary person is night for the yogi. Sometimes Yogananda would say this, that which is day to the worldly man is night for the yogi and that which is night for the worldly man is day to the yogi. He's essentially, Krishna is saying, what the worldly person is seeking, the yogi isn't. It's the complete opposite. The worldly man is looking for excitement, for sensory pleasure. The yogi looks for bliss. The yogi man is looking for restlessness and so continuously seeks variety and the yogi is looking for stillness. The worldly man is looking to get ahead, get, uh, you know, continue to achieve these outward understandings of success and the yogi is only looking for wisdom where God's will is being uh, channeled through him. So we've got to get our priorities right. Don't think with your worldly understanding and again not a negative sense let's not let's not take krishna's words and he uses the beautiful term the unenlightened versus the yogi the ordinary man compared to the yogi we have to realize that we're going to have to shift a lot of our perceptions if indeed truly we seek god we seek divine communion and if we're not seeking it then we'll try our little ways to just, you know, use some of this wisdom, some of this advice and keep moving forward lifetime after lifetime until we get to the point where Arjuna is, where he's desperate, where he lays himself before Krishna and says, Lord, I can't anymore. I need to know. I need you now. We have just two more stanzas. Contentment is his who like the ocean calmly absorbs into himself all the rivers of desire. One, on the contrary, whose desires trickle outward is soon drained of energy. So again, Krishna is just helping us realize, redirect everything, draw back all those rivers, those tributaries of energy that we've put out into the world, withdraw them not to reject the world but to fill yourself back up with your full potential and then the ocean can choose what it wants to do but a little pond if i make just a nala a little drain from that pond very soon that pond is drained and this is how we are at the end of the day we're drained 
We've given it all away with people who've disappointed us in desires that aren't fulfilled, in anger, in frustration, in great joys, in hopes, in dreams. We've given it all away. And there's nothing wrong with the dreams and the hopes and the desires. The problem is that it doesn't fulfill us. And so when we draw it back and we become the ocean once again, then contentment is ours. And from that contented state, we decide, we choose, just as the saint does. They're always doing things. The saint is never sitting around saying, Om, 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 Sab Govinda hai. These saints are a dynamos of energy. I mean, you can't keep up with them. You know, if you've read Narayani's book, uh, My Heart Remembers Swami Kriyananda, that's the example we know of, that we've lived and seen. He's just like, I mean, these young people were surrounding him and they couldn't keep up with him because he was an ocean and we were just little lakes you know, trying our best not to let our energy get dissipated. So bring it back and then allow it to go out. And then you see a torrent of power goes out. And that creates success and that creates magnetism and that creates harmony and that uplifts those around you rather than those trickles. Finally, O Arjuna, this state of relinquishing all desires and being fully satisfied in a state of desirelessness Oof. is known as Brahmastiti. Stit means firmly, anchored. Once you're anchored in that state, realizing that I don't need anything, that you're contented in that state of desirelessness. And the truth is we're not contented in a state. We have desires. We accept that. We're not contented yet. But we would like to be. And once you're established in that state, it's called the Brahmastiti. Absolute oneness with the infinite. Anyone who achieves this state will never again fall into delusion. Ah, boy. <laughs> When will it come? Even at the moment of death, if one concentrates wholeheartedly on this state, he attains perfect eternal bliss. But it doesn't come so easily if we've not practiced every day. You don't have to achieve it in right now, right here. But if you practice it every day, every day, every day, at that moment of death, God's grace allows us to stay in that state. And then he lifts us up into eternal bliss. So aim for that. Go for every meditation. Go for that bliss every time. Don't let the world have power over you. Build that ocean of power within and then actually transform the world. Be meaningful in this world, not a, a leaf on the wind of circumstance and fate and karma. Anyway, thus ends the ch second chapter called Shankhya Yoga of the Upanishad of the Holy Bhagavad Gita. Narayani, you have any final points to share with us? When one study a scripture, two things happen. Or we get super excited because we really can do this or we get so discouraged 
<laughs> just by the thought of how many things we need to work on to become aware. I mean, just by that paragraph that uh, Krishna is sharing with Arjuna about, you know, the likes and dislikes, the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, know how to overcome and work and channel, redirect that chitta, that feeling within you. I mean, it's just never-ending list of things to do. And not only that, once you start um, becoming aware of the infinite desires and likes and dislikes and attachments that we have again uh, i want to choose the option of getting really excited because we also know that krishna our guru the divine is always by our side but it takes work it takes effort one disciple once um Yogananda was uh, telling to one of his disciples certain things that that disciple had to overcome and work on. And the disciple replied to Master, kind of, you know, complaining like, yes, it's very easy for you to say that because you are a master and you, you know, it's so easy for you to say it. And Yogananda very strongly replied, what do you think it made me a master? You know, it was by constantly working life after lifetime about those little desires and attachment and finding ways to really transform them and to offering them to God in addition with our meditation practices. And this is something that I would like for us to pay more attention especially daily when we are trying to develop above all self-control in our lives. Pay attention of those tendencies that you have. Perhaps, perhaps for some of you is overeating or over talking too much or indulging too much in technologies or watching Netflix or perhaps trying to avoid as much as you can people and circumstances. Anyway, identify those tendencies that you know you have to do something about it. If you enjoy food way too much, more than you should, make sure that every day you eat just a little bit less. If you like to talk too much or gossip too much, just make sure that rather than being constantly talking for four hours, you talk for three hours. If you smoke cigarettes, you know, a package every day, try to smoke, smoke 10 cigarettes a day. I don't know, I mean, better <laughs> if you don't, but I just want to make it real for you because we have some habits that we know are not good for us, are not healthy, and we know that eventually we will need to overcome if we want to make spiritual progress. So be honest with yourself. The spiritual path takes a lot of honesty with yourself and humility. Humility in the sense that knowing that we need help. We need a guide, we need a guru, we need a scripture, we need a practice, technique, people that could guide us and could give us the strength that we need in order to keep choosing 
the right path, the right decisions, the right course of action. And I'm going to end with, at the beginning, Shujo started his class with Arjuna asking, you know, a saying, how does he sit, speaks, walk, move? And Yogananda highly recommended to read the life of saints because they are really the custodians of religion, true religion, true, true spirituality. They are the perfect examples of what it means to be a perfect, balanced, you know, human being, not human being, like saintly, you know, this is how it should look like in my life. So if you need to choose the right example to follow, choose the life of saints and read about how they overcame uh, the things and the tests that they had, how they, you know, break through delusion, uh, what they did to attract that grace that helped them to, again, overcome the tendencies that they had and how they magnetized the power to really create that contact with the divine. So if you can add into your list of things that will help you to remind yourself of the direction and the examples that we should follow. Today, someone, a friend of ours, uh, wrote me a message. Could you please uh, tell me the book that you read uh, in your seclusion, I mean, about the saints that you read? And this is a book that Yogananda highly recommended for all of us. And the title of the book is Saints That Moved the World. It's a beautiful, very inspiring book of, you know, seven, eight of the main saints that uh, Yogananda really um, uh, recommended. And uh, it was very, very inspiring. So highly recommended to you. The vocabulary is a little bit difficult. It's like an old, no? old, yeah, old English 